Welcome to the Connection Podcast. I'm Jason Keister, the show's producer, here with hosts Drew Boreen and Lexi DeLuna. Let's get ready to connect with somebody new today. Three. All right. Welcome to the Connection Podcast. We have special guests with us today, President Carl Ogan. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And then we have the DeSoli team with us, Chuck. Hello. And Christina. Hello, everyone. All right. <laughs> Excited to get going on the show. Um, Carl, it's going to be great. Every <laughs> episode we've done has been, I think it's been good, right? Carl, we usually start with a general intro. I do want to ask you, though, you're in the stake presidency. First off, what what is it like getting that call when it first happens? Terrifying, actually. You know, the process is um, they'll they'll call in members of the, the high council, bishops, former bishops, so forth, and you have a brief interview with the area authorities. You know, going into it, you know, I hear a lot of people say, oh, I had a feeling, I had a feeling. Well, my feeling was there is no way they will call me into this position. So I thought oh, I was in the free and clear. I was just going to go drop some names and and that was going to be somebody else. Um, so that's what I did. I went in and my first name was Jeff Fuller, you know, so I, I had a pretty strong feeling that, that, uh, he was going to be the next stake president. So I guess if there was a feeling that was it. So I left the meeting and I came back home, went about my daily business. They said to stay available until like one thirty. <laughs> so it was like literally one thirty, and I'm taking my, my, my jacket off and started was like folding clothes in my bedroom and my phone rings and it says president Ennis. And I literally oh, had a panic attack. <laughs> and then my first thought was, okay, okay, it's 1.30. They've already called the stake president. So I, th- this has just got to be like something else. So uh, it wasn't so. So I went in and, and uh, I got the call extended to be the second counselor. So it was pretty intimidating. It was intimidating for so sure. You went through a gauntlet. I did. I did. Bam, bam. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was safe. And then right at the... The 11th hour, bam, they got me. <laughs> Did you know Jeff Fuller very well before that? or I didn't know Jeff well. Um, he and I served together as stake cub leaders um, and Weebelows. Uh, I think I was more of the babysitter and Jeff was the was the instructor. You know, it was his wily little kids in there. So <laughs> <laughs> they needed another voice and, and that was me. So... We served together for a while, and I really enjoyed him. We had a good time together, so um, I guess that's where I made my first mistake is maybe I had a good impression there. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I was also one of the people they interviewed when they were you know, deciding on a new stake president, and I, I did the same thing. I said, oh, Jeff Fuller, and I, they went, oh, yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, it's not going to be me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. Bye. Um, <laughs> How has it been serving with uh, Jeff and with Gary Blair? It's been amazing. You know, it's it's really neat. Somebody, you know, f- as myself, you know, I don't have the traditional LDS experience as a priesthood holder. Um, I had a long period of inactivity. Uh, I didn't go serve a mission. I, you know, I just didn't think I was the qualified candidate. And, you know, serving with these brethren, just the, just the genuine love they have. Um, it, it's just been wonderful. It's been a blessing for sure. How do you feel that 
you've changed or grown in the time you've been in that calling? I think the biggest thing is just recognizing the influence of the spirit. Um, not, not anything huge, but just the, the small promptings, you know, the, the feelings that you get, whether it's a name for a calling or an action you need to take to um, accomplish a task or to help somebody, uh, just really understanding how the spirit works. That's great. I, I like that. And um, I think in your calling, it's probably a process to learn how the spirit guides you, right? Um, how do you feel the spirit working through you? And uh, for those listening, you know, maybe who are trying to figure out on their own when they're being guided, when they're not, what does that look like for you? Well, I think it's it's unique for each person, that, and that's the difficult part. Is my experience and the way it influences me may not be the same as you or or anybody else. And um, the one thing that, that I've kind of learned is is when it does act, when you do feel it, is is to is to act upon it. Uh, I'll give you kind of just an example. We were searching for a, a seminary teacher to support, um, the Springfield high school. And there was a name that, that was very clearly the name that we were looking for, but president Blair and I were like, Oh, they're already a school teacher. They got so much responsibility. And, and president Fuller's like, yeah, but I just have a feeling. Mm-hmm. And so we actually kind of poo pooed him for like two or three weeks. And until, <laughs> until he said, mm, no, I want you to go ahead and, and make that call. Uh-huh. And and that was really something for me that stood out was like, okay, you know, that's that the feeling was there, but we didn't act on it, except for President Fuller did. And so once that call was made and I, I made that um extended that calling, it was just meeting with Sister Sperry and Brother Sperry and talking about it. It's just the spirit was so strong that that was yeah, th- what needed to happen at that time. So it, it was a great experience. And those little things like that have really been testimony builders. It's cool. I, I think it's a process, right? You learn to have the courage to act on those promptings. And then you get the confirmation sometimes later that, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm being guided right now. And you're right. I think each of us experiences it maybe a little differently. So we have to be careful with not being prescriptive as far as, this is how you ought to feel the spirit. Right. Yeah, for sure. You know, one thing that um, in our family, one of my one of my kids, we talked about. Since you're in primary, you hear about the still small voice, right? And so the expectation is when the spirit is guiding you, you're going to hear, you know, like a little "Hey, there, you need to be doing this" <laughs> in the back of your head, and and that's not how the spirit always works with everybody. You know, it could be, you know. A, just a feeling, a a um, an influence, something. It doesn't. It's not necessarily a voice, and and understanding that's important. Oh, cool. Well, Carl, can you tell us about Carl Ogan? I have to admit, even as my wife and I were talking earlier today, she was like, "I know Gary Blair, and I know <laughs> uh, I know President Fuller pretty well, but I I don't know much about Carl Ogan." Yeah. 
Well, um, I am from Pleasant Hill. Grew up in Pleasant Hill for the most part. Um, early youth. We lived in Springfield over off of 39th and Catherine in the, the high rent district there, right next to the log pond. So um, we moved to Pleasant Hill when I was in third grade, and I, my parents still live out there. Um, I've got two older siblings, two younger siblings, older brother and sister, younger brother and sister. My, I've been married to my wife for almost, well, this year will be 31 years, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do the math real quick in my head. So yes, 31 years. Um, and uh, we actually met at Video Land, where I had, was working with Tony Saxman as his assistant manager. Yes, at the video store. Um, we proceeded to get married and have five wonderful children, three of which are out of the house and moving in their directions. I'm a granddad. Became a grandfather last year, which was fantastic. Ooh, congratulations. Grand- yeah, uh, grandbabies are awesome. Um, you don't have to keep them. Yes. <laughs> the joy, none of the work. That's right. And then Carly and Casey, that's our, our second litter. Um, they're sophomores and juniors in high school and awesome, wonderful, challenging kids that, um, bring a lot of joy to my life. And, uh, that's kind of the 10,000 foot two minute review. That's what we're going for. I like it. Uh, Chuck and Christina, what do we want to start asking Carl about? Well, I was looking at some of the questions that, uh, that's kind of on the line and almost uh, there's kind of like almost like a timeline here. So um, maybe going back to the beginning with like with your childhood, uh, going along the lines of being able to fix most anything. Um, <clears throat> how was that ability and family life? Yeah. Like, yeah. So my dad is amazing. He's uh, he's a non, I guess, licensed engineer, fabricator, carpenter, mechanic. I mean, he does everything. Um, he's a farming family from Kansas. He grew up in Marcola. Um, so if, if there was anything that we needed, dad would make it. And usually, uh, one of, of myself or my older brother were, you know, we were the gophers. So we got to watch dad as little ones, yeah. uh, Build stuff, fix stuff, change stuff, hold the flashlight, get screamed at. <laughs> I did learn at a very young age when we're working on cars to stand on a four by four yeah. because <laughs> the wrenches flying up from under the car hurt, <laughs> hurt when they hit you in the shins, but they don't hurt when they hit the four by four. Holding that flashlight is high stakes, man. Oh, man. Wait, you don't hold it right. Be ready to feel some dad shame there. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, there's, you're, you're, but, and you never hold it right. I don't know if anybody has ever held the, the light properly. I don't know if there is a way to hold it right. No, you yeah, need like I mean, 10 lights. Yeah. And it's a, it's actually kind of a running joke with my my kids is about losing the dad losing his stuff because the light's not in the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, that's, you know, kind of where we took a lot of pride in, you know, my dad built our house. Um I got my first car when I was 14 years old, and it was a 67 Chevy Camaro Super Sport. Um, and I got that out of a wrecking yard. 
So learning how to be do body work and mechanic work and paint and oh, and all that kind of stuff and it's a uh, and it's just I've always taken a lot of pride in that and and whether it's a washing machine or a broken toy or whatever it was that usually gets dropped in my lap said dad can you fix it mm-hmm. it's like sure that's mm-hmm. the hardest thing you've ever fixed the hardest thing i've ever fixed is probably uh a samsung tablet oh, that, that already sounds that yeah. carly actually took to the bathtub twice <laughs> to wash while she was taking a bath. Now, granted, that's my fault for giving like a six-year-old a tablet in the first say, place. I was going to say, was this like uh, last week or? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So, yeah. So just, uh, you know, those fine electronics and the drying and the polishing and resoldering some things and, and just kind of just watching YouTube videos until you figured it out. That was that was probably the most challenging. I wouldn't say it was the hardest, but it was yeah. definitely the most challenging. Yeah, I, I remember uh, when you mentioned about the, the vehicle. I I got one of my uh, cars growing up from a junkyard as well, and uh, it had like a, a gash in the um, the the, um, the what do you call it the, the cover the engine cover I guess. Mm-hmm. So you know uh, it was leaking you know fluids, uh, and the transmission was was shot. And I remember trying to pull that thing apart and uh like with the transmission all the gears didn't have the right materials you know tools and so you know carefully getting a hammer and you know just knocking those gears off a little at a time took forever and but i just yeah the experience behind doing things yourselves yourself and uh um it definitely goes a long way yeah it's 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 rewarding it's rewarding to get something that doesn't work or that didn't exist and then you're able to to fix it or build it yeah, I wanted to build off that concept a little bit because I grew up thinking that, and I I had a lot of mentors that tell me this too, is you get a good enough job, you make enough money, why put in the work yourself when you can work a couple of hours and pay somebody to do a job that would take you a Saturday? Um and I, I live by that principle for years and years. And, and only now I'm starting to realize that, you know, people are more depressed now than they've ever been. Um, people are going through mental health crises, identity crises. And I, I wonder if some of that is we've lost some of this generalist mentality where the world is trying to make us specialize and Mm -hmm. you have to be good at one thing and then everybody else does everything for you. And I, I feel like there's probably, this is just me, but some intrinsic truth to God wanted us to have a variety of skills and abilities and be almost like a jack of all trades. Um, I wanted to know you guys' thought on that because it's it's not fact. It's just a, a theory I've been working through. I absolutely agree with that. You know, uh, we we were we were told we would survive in this earth by the sweat of our brow, not by the sweat of somebody else's brow. So that's one thing that I always kind of thought about is, you know, we we do what everything we can do, um, but also just you know getting out there and thinking and fixing and and building i mean it actually gave me anxiety this year to have 
watch somebody else build a section of fence for me because our neighbor insisted that we had a professional uh, install the fence. And I'm looking, I was like, I could have done that better, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So now granted they did it in about two hours and it probably would have taken me six, but yeah. um, But yeah, I think there's definitely, you know, some peace of mind, some gratification, some challenges, frustrations, overcoming adversity, working through difficult situations um, that you can learn through those for doing things like that, which if every time you run into something difficult or something that needs to be fixed and you handed it to somebody else, what, what did you learn? Yeah. I love that thought. What did, what do you guys think? Oh, did you go first? Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. Cause I don't know. I want to be like as independent from other people as I want to be. And like, you need a comes as no surprise. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, having those little school skills is very useful because I find myself often going to dad here for certain things. And then, but I see my parents doing all these things, like they've been building their own shed and everything. And I want to like learn how to build things and do things by myself. So I think there's like, um, one of the things to learn is sort of that engineering mindset because, you know, um, Heavenly Father being kind of the architect of everything. Oh, And it's interesting to see in the world uh, as you learn how things work, how things relate to each other, you know, even to the basics of let's learn how to cook, you know, mm-hmm. that just that basic putting ingredients together and making certain recipes. Well, there's your intro to, you know, chemistry. And, you know, go one step further in, you know, biology, all that stuff, you know, you you start to understand how things apply, how things uh, react with each other, cause and effect. There's a whole engineering mindset. If you go deep into the stuff, if you start to learn about how things work. So. Oh, yeah. You you went even deeper. God being the (laughs) God being the engineer and the the architect. Right. Uh, That's cool. what else do you guys want to talk about? Um, so you want to do a redo maybe around 16. <laughs> <laughs> I love the re- I love when people say they want to redo something. That I see people in in for those who don't know in our in our show survey, before someone comes on the show, one of our questions is, what would you potentially do or ha- want to redo on? And a lot of the time people answer. I wouldn't redo anything. I learned from all my experiences and that's great. I mean, that's a good answer, but I think if I were answering this, I'd probably have a list of a hundred things. <laughs> so I like it when people do answer, they, they would redo something. Well, yeah. I, you know, when I, when I was 16, you know, 16 is kind of a, it's kind of a weird year anyways. You're not really an adult. You're not really a kid anymore. You already know everything. Um, I, my son already knows everything and he's only 12. He's just, he's a, he's yeah. ahead of the game. He's yeah. advanced. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but you know, it, at 16, there was some critical decisions that were made based on, um, other people's reaction to me. So, you know, I had, I had, uh, you know, growing up in a small town, Pleasant Hill, I didn't go to church with members. It was me and my family and one other family for the most part that attended church. So being a faithful member wasn't always easy, but it was something I took pride in doing and still trying to be a cool kid, you know, 
um, played a lot of sports and had some success with that. And, uh, but I was attending scouts. I was going to mutual. I was, um, a new priest blessing the sacrament. And, uh, I had gone to a homecoming activity after a football game and had gone to this party with my girlfriend of the time and was walking around and, you know, the parties at that time were barn parties and there was alcohol and there was other things going on that maybe weren't appropriate for that age. And so my out to that was humor. I was a, I was a goof. I'm still a goof. Um, so somebody had offered me a drink and I say, Hey, no thanks. I'm trying to quit or, <laughs> or something like, Hey, I've had enough already, man. I'm crazy. <laughs> you know, said so just something goofy. Um, so I had gone to the following week's activity and my uh, priest advisor at the time met me in the lobby and told me I wasn't welcome, that my actions and behavior were unbecoming. And until I had met with a bishop and confessed my sins and been on the path of repentance, that he did not want my influence with the rest of the youth, which was devastating for me at the time. Uh, so I turned around and walked out the door to the building and got in my car and, and drove home and went in my room and get a little emotional here, but cried my eyes out a little bit. Wow. Um, and uh, I thought I was going to get a phone call. You know, from the bishop, from the priest quorum, young men's president, somebody that say, hey, Carl, I'm sorry. That, that wasn't right. You're a good kid. Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so my pride kept me from going back. My pride decided to say, well, if, that'll, if that's what they think Carl Logan is, maybe that's who Carl Logan is. And... So I slowly um, started drifting away. So my mom, I didn't want to tell her what happened. I was embarrassed. You know, I don't want to tell her. I'm not a good kid. You know, I adore my mom. Um, and so I would make excuses why I didn't feel good. I can't find my church shoes. I got a rip in my shirt. And, you know, so periodically going to church went to no longer going to church at all which led to hanging out at the parties and instead of not partaking, partaking. Um, coming from a family that has some ad addictive tendencies, it led me down a different path. Um, and in all honesty, at first, it was liberating. It was fun. I mean, I can't lie and say I didn't have some great, crazy, wild experiences because I did. And... But here's the crazy thing about that is the adversary is going to make that experience that way to start. It wasn't until yeah. I got out of high school, I got out of my parents' influence, I was on my own living with other guys that were also heading in that same direction, it was a fast track to nowhere, that things stopped kind of falling into place. You know, those fun activities 
became kind of scary activities. Um, I woke up one time in, in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, not really sure how I got there and what I was doing there or where anybody else was that I got there with. Yeah. That was kind of a, <laughs> that was kind of a turning point, honestly, that I started looking at my life and reflecting back to that moment at 16 going, what happened? Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, when the adversary has a hold of you, he makes, when he knows he has a hold of you, he starts to tear you apart and destroy your self-worth. So I had gotten to the point where I didn't have value in myself any longer. I didn't know why I was here, what I was doing. I didn't have a purpose. Um, I was just a piece of garbage at that time. I academically ineligible LCC, you know, uh, because I wasn't going to school. I signed up and I'd go party and go to the lake and ski and do a bunch of other stuff. And I remember um, going up to my parents' house, just kind of lost and um, walking around down by the creek, which tons of memories down by the creek, just trying to figure out who I was and if I wanted to be here anymore. And uh, <laughs> I saw my mom walking to get the mail. And uh, I was like, okay, I need to be here. But what am I going to do? How do I fix this? And uh, my career path was to go to be a, a EMT or, or firefighting or something like that. But my school was so bad. Um, I was trying to figure out how to get back on my feet and, uh, I got a, a know nothing job at video land and video land <laughs> changed my life because heavenly father knew my heart and knew what I needed. And he put people in my life that saved me. And, uh, I guess I kind of, that's kind of a crazy way to get around to a, a oh, 16 redo, that, but, that's good. but, uh, that's that's kind of that's kind of why I would wish I would have seen what my life would have not that again I would have, would I change where I'm at right now and those experiences I had to make the person I am today no but if there was a bizarro world or yeah. or something that I could have watched I me mean, handle that 16 year old experience different would I have served a mission would my what would what different would happen in my life yeah. And I don't know if that's really important, and I don't think about it a lot, but it is It is kind of there. What would what would have been different? So I'm thinking back, and I know that sometimes back uh, back then, the, there was sometimes a hardline culture uh, on aspects in the church, uh, and things I've seen things evolve a little bit to some degree, you know, uh, as far as sensitivities. Um, if being in the state parentheses now, you had advice for the young man's leader at the time and the bishop at the time, what would that advice be to them? You know, I'm very passionate about that actually because of the experiences that I did have and the path that I did kind of travel um, and not being that typical Melchizedek priesthood holder or stake presidency member or bishopric member is, um, you know, you need to meet kids where they're at and you need to know them. 
You need to, they, they just can't be a member of a role or a name on a list. You got to know them. And if they're struggling, meet them where they're at. If they're not coming to activity, it doesn't mean they're disenchanted with church. Something's happening in their life. Mm. And it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. But do you know? Have you reached out? Have you really shown genuine Christ-like love? Because what, what are we learning right now in Come Follow Me is, is Christ knows people and sought people individually. He didn't just passively go about his mission on this earth knowing his presence was enough to influence everybody. He sought after the individual. He sought after the sinner, the sick, the meek, the downtrodden. He didn't go to the the believers and say, hey, come follow me. Oh, you are right on, man. Good Mm job. You know, um, so that would be my advice is, is know, know the youth, know those kids that uh, are struggling, know the kids that are doing great, but just know them. Yeah. That's good stuff. That's really good stuff. And I, I think it's so relevant now. Um, it's something I've been thinking a lot too, because I think maybe with good intentions, we sometimes gave the impression of, oh, you're cut off or you don't belong here anymore because of X, Y, and Z, when really the Savior, regardless of where we're at, he's always opening his arms up to us um, and, and welcoming us in regardless of what we're doing in our life right now. So, Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, you think of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not intended for just believers. You know, it's it's meant to to heal. It's meant to to give peace. You know, the atonement is just such a powerful, powerful thing um, to be able to have in somebody's life. And without it, you know, I just don't I just don't even know where I would even really be right now, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. I want to talk about Video Land now cuz it sounds like that was a that was a big turning point. Video Land was both awesome and terrible. Um the people were awesome, the company was terrible. Um no, so yeah, it was a it was a kind of a transition. I was living with a guy that had um a drug abuse problem and um I had to scare meth monsters out of his room at night uh, because he would have something we're all familiar with. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, there's invisible, <laughs> invisible little gremlins that I had to chase out of his room, and I just was uh, again. I was just on this this path to nowhere, and I got this job from my my brother in law. Actually, was leaving to go back to Utah, um, so I came in and did the interview. He kind of vouched for me. And Tony Saxman was the manager. The regional manager was a gentleman named Steve Jones, who was also a member. What? Um, oh my gosh! Not not this Steve okay. Jones, but a different Steve Jones. Okay, I was I was like, how how deep does this go? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and Steve Jones is such a 
such a you know unique name that there can only be one of them. Yeah, there can only be yeah, just like Joe Smith, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there was a number of members that were in management levels at Video Land, which also had a lot of members working at Video Land. So I got this job and Tony Saxman was the manager. And after working there for a while, he had um, promoted me to be his assistant manager. And and the thing I really appreciate about Tony was he kind of, he knew, you know, we talked, he's an easy guy to talk to. So we kind of talked about where things were in, in life and where I was at and some of my experiences. And, uh, you know, his just acceptance was a big thing for me. Um, but as I was trying to kind of like figure out what I was, what I wanted in life and what I was doing in life, there was a, there's really a, a moment that kind of put me on the path of correction. And, um, his wife, Penny, at the time they had, um, Stephanie Kirk and Jeffrey were little and, uh, Penny would bring him dinner and don't kind of at the end of the checkout counter was this like little desk thing. And, and they were over there and there's these three little toe headed kids climbing all over Tony and loving on him. And I just remember this, the spirit, just overwhelmed me. It was like, that's what I'm missing in my life. That's what I need. That's what I'm, that's what I'm searching for. And uh, from that point, I was like, okay, how do I get that? How do, how do I have that in my life? And uh, that's where I met Brenda. She was senior in high school and hired there to work as a, video checker router. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh we we kind of were, you know, just friends talking. She would invite me to church and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And uh kind of went on a couple of dates and and there was a point in time where it was like she goes, you know, it was like we kind of liked each other and everything, but she's like, you know, I really, I really don't want to get too serious with anybody that that can't take me to the temple someday. And I was like, okay, I'll go to church. Sure. <laughs> I guess. So old. <laughs> <laughs> but the cool thing about it was when I did make that choice to go to church, it was like Heavenly Father scripted every sacrament meeting, every elders quorum lesson, everything that was shared to influence where I was at and where I needed to go. So it was just such an amazing spiritual experience and that kind of coming back to church, even if it wasn't, even if our relationship as a boyfriend, girlfriend, later getting married, I don't think that would have changed my current course just because of feeling that spirit and and feeling that change inside of me yeah. too. I never denied the gospel. You know, all the stuff that I did, I had a testimony. Yeah. I never did not have a testimony. What I had was pride. And I and that's what kept me away for so long. That's relatable too. I think I always identified as having a non-traditional upbringing too. You know, I had, I had a brother who you know he's he's okay with me sharing. Dealt with addiction and feel like the, the whole family got lumped into that. And I always had this impression I was on the outskirts, kind of just hanging out there. That can be a weird place to be um, 
where you feel like you don't quite have a fit. You're not the Peter mm-hmm. Priesthood. You're not the Molly Mormon. Right. Where's my place? You know? Well, there's a place for everybody. And that, you know, that's the kind of the neat thing about it. If, you know, if this is a, a, a church of service, it's a church of, um, I didn't turn in an application and a resume for any calling. I don't, I don't think you as a bishop uh, applied for that job. Did you? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, uh, I had the same impression as you when I was called, like, I really, <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you sure? This guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, and it's, you know, those experiences that people have on missions and going on missions, they're, they're your duty as a priesthood holder. Um, but it's not a qualifier. And, and it doesn't restrict you from being a bishop or in the state presidency or a general authority or an area 70. Those aren't requirements. Yeah. Well, what else do we want to talk about, guys? Um, I see that you are a limited energy electrician. What is that exactly? Well, in the trade, they refer to us as half watts. <laughs> um, so it is, uh, so you have line AC voltage and DC voltage, AC voltage will kill you as we learned from the Westinghouse and Tesla experiments. But, um, we primarily work with fire alarm systems, access control, surveillance, uh, data communications, things like that. Interesting. Um, spent... It was going to be another transition job. And then when the, the firefighter paramedic thing yeah. fell through, I was like, four years into this career, I was like, well, I guess I'll just stick this one out. <laughs> Which it's been. It's been a great career. And I worked in the field for many, many years. I own my own company um, for about 10 years. And the current company I'm working for, I'm mostly a, a designer, project manager, um, administrator now. I don't do too much tools on anymore. Um, I still can. I spent all last summer doing it, which was miserable. <laughs> you get, once you pass 50, <laughs> those things just get a little bit harder. True. Wait, so, okay. You're talking about low voltage type applications or what's... Um, yeah, low voltage, uh, under 600 volt, direct current, and just anything in particular or like pretty much. Okay. Yeah. I didn't realize there was like a, just a niche field just for, Yep. it seems like that encompasses a lot of devices. So it does. So an electrician can do all of it. So they can do line voltage, low voltage, AC, DC voltage, everything. Yeah. A limited energy electrician. It's limited because we can't handle high voltage equipment. We're not licensed to wired, a house or things of that nature. So you like make machines for those sort of things exactly or? Um, Mostly systems. Like uh, right now my company is doing the fire alarm system at the stake center. So all the news devices you start seeing and the holes in the ceiling and stuff that are going up there. That's, that's, uh, that's our company doing that right now. We're putting in access control doors. We'll have new fancy access controls that are building. You're going to have an app that will open the door now. No more keys. Wait, are you serious? Yeah. Oh, oh I just spilled the beans. I could get wow. in trouble. Well, what if the internet goes down? You're locked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, as long as it has cellular service, it'll still work. Get an axe. That's cool. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. We have so many keys floating around. Yes. We have a a key problem. (laughs) Key management problem. Let's see. Um, Okay. You survived cancer. Yeah. Seems like an intense uh, situation. Yeah, it was. It was crazy. It was a another one of those life-changing experiences. So I had struggled with like abdominal pain for a couple of years. And um, I'd go in and complain about it and they'd give me a test. And it's like, oh, everything looks fine there. And so I would go, okay, I guess I'm just getting fat. And uh so it would just get worse and I'd go to another doctor and they'd do another test and they would say everything looks fine. I said, okay, well, I guess I'm just getting fat and old now. And uh it was actually it kind of makes you go crazy a little bit because you know there's something wrong. Yeah. And you feel something's wrong and something's not right. And you go to specialists and yeah. everything else, you know, these, these guys over here, they're just guessing anyways. No, so. actually <laughs> like sidebar a little bit here is I totally know what you mean because I don't think as doctors, we know everything and maybe Dr. House does. Right. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I've met with several people who before were able to come up with a diagnosis with a test or something like that, they already have felt for a long time intuitively that something is wrong and different with their body. And some of that's the limitation of just us as human beings, as doctors, Mm -hmm. some of it's the limitations of the tools we have in medicine, but I think there's totally validity to that. Yeah. I know my body thing. Yeah, for sure. So it kind of progressed and it got to the point where like when I would sit down, it would make me shorter breath and I could feel like pressure coming up under my rib cage and stuff. So I would always be sprawled out on the couch or something. And so one day on my way to work, as I turned into um, the street where our office was, and I just felt this flush come over me. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And I like kind of pulled over to the side and I passed out. Mm. And uh, guys from work came over, got me. And and I kind of came back to a little bit. And I just had a really bad fever. And and Brenda came and took me home. Or I, they took me home. I don't remember which. But I was going to be tough. And I was like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. I've already gone to the doctor half a dozen times. I'm just sick. And Brenda insisted, you know, you need to go to the doctor. You need to go to the doctor. I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. So we went to the doctor (laughs) and, you know, they were like, again, oh, we don't know. Um, It looks like maybe diverticulitis. And and, uh, so we left to go to the pharmacy to get some medicine. The doctor called back and said, go directly to the emergency room. And uh, so I was like, oh, okay. And so I guess my white blood count was through the roof and... So we went to the emergency room and um, long story short, they came back after a bunch of tests that nice. And when the doctor walks into the emergency room and grabs your hand and looks at you with these puppy dog eyes and says, we saw something on your scan that's not normal. Mm -hmm. You have a large mass in your abdomen. And my mother had just like the year before gone through some ovarian cancer. And so she just had that talk. 
Mm-hmm. And so I, I saw her instant, you know, kind of just like panic. Um, so the first thing that went to my head was cancer. So next morning they did an exploratory surgery. Um, I had a tumor between the size of a volleyball and a soccer ball that had basically engulfed my intestines and had eroded my small bowel. So I was becoming septic is what was going on. And so my outsides became my insides for a little while as they removed everything and did some resections and stuffed it all back in and stapled me up. Um, And then it was the waiting game, you know, as they come back with uh, all the their test results and everything, what type of cancer it was, how aggressive it was. It was a stage four um, tumor. Uh, Wasn't super aggressive because it was growing for three years. Um, And I didn't have a lot of infiltration into lymph nodes. Um, But I had some, uh, because it had become so large, the outside had sloughed. And so I had a lot of stuff inside of me and it attached to other parts of my abdomen and things. Um, so the, the initial diagnosis was uh, most likely three to five years mm-hmm. with it. So that was really hard when you get an expert, you know, uh, an expiration date and um, I have an amazing wife because she carried, excuse me. She carried our family yeah. for a long time because I emotionally did not handle it very well. I mean, I was I was watching like toilet paper commercials and crying because I'm not going to be able to see my grandkids and wipe their rear ends or, you know, whatever it was. It, it just, everything was, I will never get to. I will never get to. I'm only, you know, 44 years old. My son was on a mission in El Salvador. And um, I just mentally kind of checked out i just was afraid yeah of everything was there any aspects of that where you're just kind of angry like how could you guys have missed this yeah i was angry with doctors um there was a lot of mistrust with doctors on that you know i i didn't really trust anything they said anymore um but you know i think that's kind of human nature i've gotten over that yeah for the most part um I will say that with some help and therapy and love of my family and support of my wife that I was able to make it a positive experience that looking at some of the things that I was doing in life and and kind of changing it, changing my attitude about certain things, being more present, um, being more active in, in the family. Uh, I was very career very work driven mm. and um, kind of made me realize that whether it's three years or 30 years, we do have an expiration. So, you know, better get living your life now. Yeah. At the time, um, was your wife working at all or? <laughs> well, Brenda was working as a part-time kindergarten teacher and had just started her master's program Ooh, to get yeah. her full at the time, State of Oregon required a master's program yeah. at that. And so she was going to working part-time, going to school full-time. Um, Carly and Casey, I believe, at that time were six and seven. Like I said, Garrett was on a full-time mission. The other kids were um, 
middle school, high school. Um, so yeah, her plate was full. She was amazing. Handled it like a absolute champ. I, that's what I'm kind of wondering. Like was all this extra, uh, requirements now, like just compressed with her or were some things needed to be dropped? Like, did she have to put anything on hold for a bit or is she just like, she managed to make it all work. She, and as an honor student, straight A's, top of her class. (laughs) She didn't sleep. (laughs) I don't think she did sleep. There's no way. (laughs) There's no way she slept. No, she, she just amazes me of, of the capacity looking back on it of what she had to do not only the burden of all that, but the burden of being the person running the family. Mm-hmm. I couldn't say no to my kids because the last thing I thought, well, the last thing I know is dad wouldn't let them do this or dad wouldn't give them that. So I, you know, I was, I was the sugar daddy, mm-hmm. you know? So she had to be the disciplinarian. She had to be the person doing all those things, which wasn't fair at that time, but she did it because it needed to be done. Yeah. It's good. Good being able to have somebody so loving and reliable to be able to make up that. Yep. Very, very blessed. And how long did this last for? Well, I was in and out of the hospital for the next three years with different procedures and another resection and removing of a gallbladder that was precancerous and um, had really bad adhesions that um, caused me a lot of pain that they tried to clean up. But when you try to clean up adhesions, you create more adhesions. And um, so about three to five years. And when we got to that that mark, because you're getting up in that mark of three to five years, and that's what they said, oh, that's when it's going to be. So Mm -hmm. um, I got to three-year mark, and my oncologist, we were going through my numbers and everything. And I had some issues with my my, um, kidneys as I was adjusting to the tumor inhibitors. Um, but he was like, every other thing looks great. He says, you know what? You know, these are just estimates. He goes, I'm, we're not going to put a number on this. You're doing great with this medicine. We're going to stay on this. And I'm coming up on 10 years. Uh, this was year eight. He said, when we get to 10 years, we'll see where we're at. And I might not even have to take tumor inhibitors anymore. So we'll see. Nice. Was there ever a point like, uh, they told you stage four at the beginning. Stage four. Yep. Do they ever like reduce those stages as they see numbers or? No, it's just the, it's the rating of the tumor and size growth, infiltration into your body, what all, um, where it was at. It just increases the risk factor. Yeah. So the tumor I had was a gastrointestinal stromal tumor. Yeah. And, um, I'm, I'm fortunate that those couple of years that they took to diagnosis because before they could have diagnosed diagnosed it as like some other form of abdominal cancer and put me through radiation and chemo Mm -hmm. which just doesn't respond to those Mm -hmm. the only thing just responds to is surgical removal and and um tumor inhibitors and so it's either you still slow or stop the growth or cut it out but if you go put somebody through chemo or radiation, you'll lower their immune immunities. And then it just runs rampant and, and grows. You, you, you escalate its growth. Mm-hmm. Intense. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Um, I wanted to ask you about 
um, maybe just how your faith evolved. Um, we we talked about your growth and your faith earlier in life, how it evolved through that whole process and still is with, with battling cancer. You know, a lot of what I've learned in that faith is, is just, is that word in and of, of itself is having the faith that, so an experience I had in the hospital when I was, when I thought I was dying and, um, getting on my knees the best I could and praying to Heavenly Father, not to be cured, but to take care of my family. And uh, I don't know how, I just I, I just sat there and poured out my heart to Heavenly Father and gave thanks for the time that I had with them. And I was just filled with so much love and light and this is this is a time where an audible voice came into my head that says it's going to be okay everything will be okay and it was so reassuring not that i was going to be healed miraculously yeah. and walk out of there and and everything was going to be fine but i knew at that time no matter what happened heavenly father had just promised me that my family was going to be okay. Yeah. And that, even though I struggled emotionally past that, those struggles were from myself. They were kind of selfish struggles. Yeah. I had never doubted that my family would ever need because Heavenly Father was going to take care of them. It makes me think about, I think this was Elder Bednar a while ago. Um, he gave an example of when he was helping a young couple, and I think it was a young man that was diagnosed with cancer too, and he I think he said, do you have the faith not to be healed? Mm -hmm. um, and it, I'd see some ways you could relate to that a bit. Um, being at that point of having the faith that's strong enough to endure, even if the answer isn't that you're cured from whatever condition. Um, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So that probably leads right into like finding ways to enjoy time with your family because now you've got the <laughs> valuable lessons of. Yep. It's well, we, we go all in with the kids activities, you know, they're, we got athletic kids and Brenda and I are just all in on it. They're doing the school stuff. They're doing the club activity stuff. We're traveling with them and, and just those, just spending that time. Some of my favorite times are not the games, but the drive to them mm. and the conversations we get to have and the the visits. Um, you know, it makes me think of my oldest boy, Garrett. We had football tickets to Oregon State for years since he was like five years old. Out there playing his little Game Boy and hitting me over the head with the thunder sticks <laughs> at the time, not caring what was happening <laughs> at the game. But the evolution of the conversations we had from a five-year-old to an 18 year old getting ready to go on a mission. And that's 13 years of experiences shared with him in that 45 to 60 minute drive from Springfield to Corvallis are just precious to me. <laughs> that's pretty cool. What are some of the activities that your kids uh, look forward to? 
Oh, my goodness, my kids. Well, you know, the older kids really enjoyed, we'd always do a big camping trip every summer. We'd take motorhome, boat out to Crescent Lake, spend five, six, eight, whatever days out there, inner tubing, swimming, uh, BB gun shooting, just getting away from it and just having a lot of fun. Um, the younger kids, Carly and Casey, I think they enjoy their rooms. <laughs> I think they enjoy mom and dad leaving them alone, but they also enjoy doing those things. And um, recently Carly's kind of taken up like rock hounding. And so we've done some beach combing and, and searching for different uh, agates or or jasper or, or different things on the Oregon coast. Or um, we went to Salt Lake last year and we stopped at a couple of rivers and looked for rocks there. And, and she found like a willow uh, field and we cut a bunch of these little willow reeds, real young willow reeds, and she weaved a basket. Right. On the way to and back what? from Salt Lake, like a full on basket. So that was that was a great experience. So I think that the the best experience of those things that aren't really planned as much is they just kind of organically happen with them. Yeah, that's it's, it's interesting to know just um the, just perspectives. Like for your perspective, you know, you enjoy that traveling time with your kids and being able to get that connection. Uh, but you know, flip it on the reverse side, you get kids, you know, they may not be as aware of what, you know, a parent wants and they're like more, you know, what, where are we going type of situation mm -hmm. and, and just, you know, how those things just kind of meet in the middle. Yep. For sure. I'm wondering a youth perspective on this. Actually, what, what are things you value the most, Christina, the just experiences with your family? Um, traditions. Specifically, oh, I'm a very what's yeah, what's yeah. what are the Desoli traditions? Oh, we have so many of them, it's insane. <laughs> Except, I think I've forgotten some of them because you keep track of it. I don't know, we have a bunch of traditions. Um, like for birthdays, we uh always do gifts in like paper bags because like my mom grew up on that since they weren't very wealthy or anything, and then same thing, like, like in that area is like in Thanksgiving, we'll uh tie. Mm. Uh, string to a branch because that's how they decorated. So some of those little things, I love to keep those alive. So mm -hmm. they're important. What do you like about those? What What are special about them? Um, I guess that like, I don't know, it kind of connects me to like the rest of my family and whoever else did it in the past. And like knowing that I can like pass it on to my children and just have something that will, you know, be our thing. <laughs> I think we feel the same way in our family, either mm -hmm. traditions we have with friends that are like family or, or family members. It's, uh, I don't know. We have like, we have a few things every year. Every year we'll have one day where we call it nerd day and <laughs> we just do something incredibly nerdy, like dungeons and dragons or <laughs> the, I think we will, we'll build a huge Lego set or something like that and just random stuff like that. And, would, those are good memories too and i agree with you mm -hmm. too carl like sometimes it's not the big event the disneyland trip or something you planned it's some random thing that happened uh this this special moment you had and you knew it was special when it was happening a lot of the time um but it might just be a car ride All right 
And it kind of makes me think that we have to almost not assign every second of our day, every, you know, every day, every week, every year to, to doing something that's on the schedule, but just having time to freelance. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I know like sometimes we try to schedule things at our house and, uh, it's, it's hard to nail down a schedule. Does not work. Does not work. <laughs> Too many schedules. My but, brothers uh, kind of don't help that schedule. Yeah, I think I'm gonna bring Levi in. We we brought him in lately. The stage. I don't. We're maybe we'll upgrade your title from secretary <laughs> stagehand. But Levi, you want to come in? And I've got a question for you. We were talking about what do you really enjoy doing with your family? Um, like what are the special things that that you really uh, value? Yeah, I like just talking. It just really lets me know more about my family and how they act and just their experiences in life. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Levi. We're getting to the point of asking the last question or close to the last question we always have to mention taylor swift check <laughs> <laughs> taylor swift is out of my wheelhouse <laughs> okay you answered my other question what do you think of taylor swift so <laughs> what do you think of taylor swift christina Are you- uh, i don't know i have a lot of genres of music that i listen to so i have some songs from her but i'm not like obsessed like Lexi is you know what's funny is we have enough uh, listenership now to where it starts relating us to different things on the algorithm so if you look it actually says you may also like come follow him and on the algorithm for Apple podcast and Spotify and then it underneath that it says people also like and it says Taylor Swift (laughs) so we've got some Taylor Swift fans but your favorite color is blue. What's up with that? It makes my eyes more hazily green colored when I wear it. <laughs> and I get more compliments in my eyes. So it's a vanity issue. So it's not a BYU thing. No, absolutely not. What, what is your allegiance to? Oregon State. Okay. So is, is Oregon State, are we friendly rivals? Or is this like a, a hateful with the Ducks? <laughs> I am a friendly rival. I've, Most of the time. I always feel that way with the Oregon, Oregon State. It it feels like almost brothers that are fighting each other. Whereas <laughs> like Washington, I straight up hate that. I hate that. Like, you have to mention that since Jordan mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. Like wearing the Huskies sweater in Sacramento is one of the top five worst days of my life. It's <laughs> <laughs> a blood boil. <laughs> No, I don't have a strong allegiance. I I enjoy it. I enjoy the the sports. I um, enjoy watching the football games and such. I'm not nearly as invested as I was. Yeah. So I still see you wearing an Oregon State hat a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. I do that more as to being a nuisance to anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> is that but, is that a truth about Carl Ogan? Do you, you antagonize people? <laughs> I could be a, a slight ant- antagonist. Yes. <laughs> in a good way i like that that's fine um all right so do we have any last minute things we want to dive into guys or um 
I do want to know because you put down spending a summer digging a hole and finishing it by falling in a creek and yes, again, (laughs) one of the best experience ending in the worst experiences. So I was a feral child growing up in Pleasant Hill. I mean, I managed to ride a motorcycle in sixth grade to school for like four months before I got caught. (laughs) So then when they realized the the little midget kid walking over to the elementary school, but parking in the high school parking lot. (laughs) So, but that's a different story. So I grew up in a kind of a Palpenfuss road. And there was two other kids that were about my age that lived in the, on the road. And one of them said that they heard there was an Indian burial grounds. Oh my God. Up on this hill. Start of like half of the movies in the 80s. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so we decided that that summer we were going to find this Indian burial grounds. I mean, we ended up building a tree house up there. Um, it like you remember the movie Holes? Yeah. That's what this hillside looked like. I mean, we were like throwing away arrowheads and all kinds of other stuff because we were looking for Indian bones. I think we found squirrels and deer and other stuff, which we decided were Indian bones. Oh, definitely. (laughs) But Uh, uh, we did the same thing as kids. We find antlers and we would, we would think they were like, you know, ancient weapons. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It was, it was awesome. I mean, we from sun up till sundown, we'd go up there and just dig and dig and dig day in, day out. And so we got to the end of summer and it was hot. We'd been digging all day and we lived on a creek. And so we're walking through the creek, kind of splashing around and goofing off. And I slipped. And over the two miles of creek we had just walked up and down, I happened to slip and fall and jam my right wrist through a bottle. And I severed my flexor tendon. So funny story of this, my mother was a nurse and she worked swing shift so she could kind of be present for like school sports and events and stuff like that so my buddies knew that my mom was sleeping and that they would get an earful if she was woken up (laughs) so they took me back to their house and jammed like a half a bag of you know the the big fluffy cotton balls into my wrist with this gaping hole you can see the oh man this gaping hole it looked like it was probably an inch wide. There's a big old flap of skin hanging off. And they shoved <laughs> cotton into it and then took scotch tape and wrapped it around and around my wrist. Why not? And so I go home and I lay on the couch for what seemed like an eternity until my mom comes down. And I wasn't a big cry. I'm a big crier now, but I wasn't as a kid. I would just say, owie, owie, owie. And so I'm laying on the couch and I see my mom, I'm going, owie, 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 my wrist, my wrist, owie. And she's like, oh my goodness. You know? <laughs> and she cuts all this tape off and is yeah. pulling this just mess of cotton balls and stuff out of my wrist and rinses it off. And she's like, well, that's not good. She like folds the flap of skin up, packages up, right? And she goes, but I need to get some more rest. <laughs> and so, and she feels horrible about it now. But so I lay there for the night. We go into the doctor in the morning and find out my my flexor tendon, which moves your wrist like this up yeah. and down, back and forth, had severed and is now somewhere up into my elbow region <laughs> at oh. some point in time. That was awful. Yeah. You so know, 
I can relate to mom on that though. The need, I need more rest. Yeah. <laughs> I remember like a little bit of a tangent, but Levi cut his forehead on the car door. When it, how old were you on that? You were, you were four or five, something like that. Yeah. It was on mother's day and, and, uh, every place was closed, all the urgent cares. And I, and, uh, we Camille wanted to go to the ER and I just said, I said, I'm going to go to ask the urgent care where I'm working if they will let me open the shop because this was like 10 o'clock at night. And so you up because there's no way I'm going to the ER. I want to go to bed <laughs> in like an hour. So so we opened up the shop. Luckily, they said it was OK, but every door was open except for the drawer with the anesthesia. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember Camille's like, well, we're just going straight back to the ER then. We're not gonna we're not gonna do this. I just looked at Levi and I said, Can you be a big boy? There's <laughs> <laughs> a bite stick. <laughs> I think we had like some topical lidocaine. It, it was it was not enough for this for the stitches, but we put those in and I don't even think I did a good job. I was that his yeah, he has a scar that shows up more when it's sunny. It's like a Harry Potter scar. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so I can relate to mom yeah. a bit where it's yeah. like, I need the sleep. Well, and I was such an accident prone kid. I mean, she was just like, oh, not again. I mean, by the time I was five, I had broken each one of my left and my right arm. Um, you know, this was, it was just another event. So mom was like, ay, darn kid. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, Actually, our kids, yeah, our, Levi broke his arm several times. I just remember the the second trip to the ER. Yeah, the second trip to the ER where we got the "Is everything okay at home?" question. Yeah, <laughs> but were you wearing clean underwear? So that that was my first experience at the ER. <laughs> I was three. We just got home from church. My dad was mowing the field. I climbed up on the back of the boat. The boat was shorter than the boat trailer. So I stepped yeah. on the roller and flipped over and broke my arm, run into the ER to get a cast. They pulled down my pants to give me a shot. I'm not wearing any underwear. First thing mom starts saying is, he dresses himself. He dresses himself. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh, Forgetting the underwear. That's that is a kid thing though for sure. Oh yeah, our youngest always forgot his underwear. It was <laughs> Yeah, we would always go to we lived close to Disney World in Florida and he would always like as we arrived he would be like, I forgot my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I don't know if I can relate to that. I feel like, yeah, your, your kids are, well, I don't know, the younger two might, no. I feel like yeah, they could yeah, forget yeah. their underwear, but uh, yeah. They might not forget it. They might do it on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Well, anything else you guys want to dive into here? I can't think of anything else. Thanks for being on the show, Carl. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, was, we genuinely enjoyed talking with you. Camille, my wife, will be happy because now she'll get to know Carl Logan better. She'll have all the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> all the dirt, the expose. Although I want to talk more about Videoland sometime. I feel yeah. like I feel like between that, between 
finding a an Indian burial ground and, and working at Video Land, I feel like there's an '80s movie there. Oh man, there was. Like we, re, we we reenacted a few actually at Video Land. I think there was more than one time uh, we were doing the Grease Lightning uh, song on the counter in the evening when business was a little slow. What so. uh, year range was this? Oh, uh, let's see. That would have been like 92, 90, oh, so 90 to 92, somewhere in there. So you're still uh, asking people if they could rewind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, get, you had your dollar fine for not rewinding your tape. You had the automatic rewinder that was like, like a 57 Chevy. Yeah. And you can put in there and get your tape rewound. I remember the day like every Blockbuster pretty much shut down and I was like, yes, because I I think I probably had $150. <laughs> so those are just forgiven now. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Although there is the one Blockbuster in Bend. In Bend, Oregon. That's where all the late fees transferred to. So if you ever oh. show up there, you're going to have like compounded <laughs> interest for an your an late alarm, fees. An alarm will go off when you show up. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks. I genuinely enjoyed having you on the show. Thank um, you. Levi, do you have the question memorized now? You want to do the last question? All right. Drum roll to the last question every time. Yeah. Uh, how has being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints helps you uh, further your relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, I feel like this is, I'm going to repeat a lot of what's been said in all the other ones, but really it has everything to do with my membership. But I think the biggest part of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is understanding the personal relationship with Christ and that His atonement was for me, individually, personally, for me, for not just some of the stuff I did or will do or continue to do, but for all of it. If I do nothing, he filled the full measure of the atonement for me, that I will have the ability to return to my Heavenly Father because of Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Chuck and uh, Christina, for coming on. You guys are pros by now. Thank you. I really appreciate it because the show has grown enough to where we can't do it with one team anymore. So can we call you back sometime? Absolutely. Awesome. Does this mean we're kind of like semi-famous? I guess we're semi-famous. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think we have 200 followers now. And we have like double that on the listeners. So we've got a decent following now. Awesome. That. It so semi-famous. Nice. <laughs> yep. All right. In this episode of the Connection Podcast. We're on most podcast carriers, so please like and subscribe. The show's art is done by Joel Boreen, and the music is provided by Drew Boreen. We look forward to connecting to you next time. Until then, take care. <laughs> <laughs>